трибунах олеют знамена, Облака поднебесни плывут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. We're really excited to be here for the second part of this season after a long winter break. We've got some great topics lined up for you today in this podcast. And we've got three guests alongside me here, so it could be a bit of a crazy one, but hopefully lots of nice debate and discussion as we go on. So the first one to introduce is uh, the editor. I was about to say new editor, but he's in the post for quite a while now, and that's James Nichols. How are you, James? Evening, Thomas. I'm, I'm very good today. I'm excited. The Summer's getting around the corner, weather's getting better, and most importantly, Russian football is finally back after what seems to have been the worst break yet. Yeah, it's been been quite a lot one. And someone who we've uh, who's on this podcast very regularly, done quite a few lovely pieces on the site recently, which we're going to discuss, and that's uh, David Sanson. How are you, David? I'm well, thank you. Good to be back. Lovely. And then the final guest, he hasn't been on for a while. We've missed him dearly. Our friend in two men, that's Andrew <laughs> Flint. How are you? Oh, not bad, not bad. It's good to be back. And I have been away. Um, Facebook hacking didn't help matters, admittedly. But um, it's, like you say, the best thing of all, Russian football finally, finally gets back. I've never looked forward more to Orenburg against Andrew, to be honest. Yeah, that was the that was the, uh, the one to get us underway. So what are we thinking about? Let's come to you first, James, seeing as you're, you're the head of the family, if you like. What, what are you thinking about this? What are you expecting from this second half of the season? I'm quite excited, actually. It's it's nice not to just have like the ten games as usual. It's a little bit longer for once. Which I just think the more of Russian football we can squeeze in between now and the end of the season is better for all of us. And I think arguably this is one of the tightest and most entertaining title races we'll have for quite some time. And I know last season and this year before with Loco and Spartak, they looked close on paper, but in reality it was just kind of both the both those teams ran away with it in the end just grinding out the 1-0 results while everybody else kind of just stumbled and fumbled away from them. In this one, we've got obviously Zenit at top and they're the favourites to go with a strong window and they've had a, they've got through the winter curse with arguably one of the, the least damaging November and Dece- December's they've had in a long time. But then you've got Krasidar just a point back and Spartak are due to play Krasidar this afternoon, obviously time of recording. Unfortunately, that game hasn't taken place. You know, that's going to be a really exciting match and up until yesterday afternoon, I thought Cisco were right into it, but now obviously a little bit further back. But they're still looking like one of the stronger teams in the league, and and it's kind of got the money in Zenit against younger, exciting teams with the with arguably the two best coaches in the division all going toe to toe for the for the title this season. Um, Andrew, would you agree with James's sentiment that this is possibly the most exciting title race we've had in a while? Well, I certainly think it has been probably up until this this week because um, Zenit winning, uh, surprisingly, against Dural, um was, you know, that was a result. I actually, without my bias coming into play, I thought they may have dropped points. Um, but Tisca losing to Arsenal Tules kind of thrown a spanner in the work because had they won as I expected them to, then it really would have still been very exciting because the, Zenit dropping points before the winter break, that that kind of reversed what most of us thought after a few weeks when Zanit were looked like they were running away with it. Um, I think the exciting part of the title race is the fact that Krasnodar are, are, seems to have finally be able to break into Champions League places. And I, I'd be amazed if they somehow dropped out because they've looked really solid. And I'd argue... Um, Tonight's, uh, well, this afternoon's game, by the time we've recorded, will have gone um, against Spartak, will be 
very, very important in that title race. If Krauss and I get a win, then I'd say title race is on. If they don't, then it's starting to look um, only 12 games to go. Could uh, could be Zanitz in their hands again, but it's definitely been an entertaining season. So a second half um, is going to be an absolute thriller, I think. And would you echo those sentiments as well, David? Yeah, certainly. Um, as James said, you know, the last two years we've had, I think at the winter break, Loco were ahead by quite some way, but Spartak was starting to hit some form. We were like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll Loco trip up, will Spartak get, get that chance? But Loco just kept grinding it out. Because, yeah, this year, you know, it, it is tight. Obviously, the start of this weekend, we've seen a couple of, uh, couple of sides starting to falter potentially, um, just below Zenit and Krasnodar. So it might not be the thrilling, you know, four-club title race that we were hoping for, but still having two clubs go into it, maybe, you know, the ideal situation is you get it down to the final day, keep the excitement going. And, uh, yeah, I think we're in for a good, good spring. Yeah, I mean, come back to you as well, David. Krasnodar... We're just referring back to your um, the piece on the website, by the way, for the listeners. We've got a listen. Uh, David's done a great piece analysing essentially the winter transfer window and what's happened there. And just looking at it here, David, we've seen uh, looking at uh, Krasnodar's, and they they haven't really done that much to improve the squad. But also a bit of a cliche, but it's good that it, it won't upset the balance. Hopefully, no, they've done they've done what they needed to do. You know, they they brought in Quaver in the summer for decent money, um, but he. He didn't adapt to Russia, and you had Shappy come through, and basically, whenever Shappy played, he was doing so much better than than Quaver. So, what's the point in keeping Quaver? So, you know, they ditched him uh, with Pereira set to leave in the summer. They've sort of looked ahead, and they've brought in uh, Christopher Olsen, Swedish international midfielder, um, and he'll likely replace Pereira long term. You know, when Pereira leaves uh, in uh, in the summer, and then uh, yes, yeah, Kapintsev coming in from Rostov was a it was a surprising move, I thought, but. Um, it shows they're looking forward, you know, bringing a young Russian player for decent money. I think he cost them around four million euros uh, up front. So, um, you know, they they and Zenit have had decent transfer windows and have certainly built for a potential title challenge. And obviously, they're both still uh, still flying in Europe, so they they had to they had to do what they had to do, and they've done it well, I think, so far. And James, coming back to just outside the title race, perhaps you meant, and I think it was you that mentioned Siska losing that shot loss. Oh no, it was Andrew that mentioned it. Sorry, to Arsenal Tula. So, are we looking at these? Euro- I mean, we're assuming that they're now at the title race. So, what are you thinking about the European spots a bit lower in the table? Well, I think Siska, I think two seven points at this stage might be too much for Siska, but this the team is just so hard to predict. I think. I, Myself, I predicted at the start of the season that Cisco would probably have a little bit of a rocky season, kind of rebuilding the players they've lost last season, all the the, the long-term internationals like Nashovic and the Belzutskis who've been at the club for over a decade. And but they've already like the they've already done above and beyond what many of us had predicted. So I wouldn't quite write off Cisco yet. And of course, I think they've arguably got the most talented coach in the league in Goncharenka. But I mean, the way they went to Arsenal Tula, yes, granted Arsenal Tula were playing in. <laughs> in Grozny, we'll get on that soon, which is ridiculous in itself. But Arsenal have actually got the best home record in the division. They've, they haven't lost in the last six games. They've won three in the bounce at home. And so going to Arsenal Tula and losing is no mean feat. And if it wasn't for two glaring Igorak and Feyeveras, which in themselves is very rare in domestic Russian football, they would, they would have came away with a relatively respectable nil-nil draw after not playing for three months and going to a difficult place and then make it even more difficult by having to travel 1,300 kilometres south for no apparent reason. So I wouldn't quite 
write out Siska of the title race yet. And on the same note, I think obviously because I've said that, that probably puts them in pole position to qualify straight for the Champions League and that third, that new third spot that we've got this season with the increased coefficient. And what about so keeping with those places, Andrew? What are you thinking in there? Well, I think uh, I think the top three, although the points difference is not very far down to Lokomotiv and Spartak, I think the top three probably will stay the same. Um, and in fact, in fact, all the European places, I don't expect there to be any change in those top five. What we mentioned um, off air before we started recording, I think David mentioned the possibility of uh, if Spartak or Lokomotiv were to win the cup and the next European place would then, of course, go to sixth place in the league. That's where it gets interesting, um, especially with Rubin's ban or provisional ban from European competition. It would then effectively be, as things stand, seventh place. And that actually starts opening up a lot of possibilities for the likes of, well, Rostov, I'd say, I mean, I mean, they're next to the table, obviously, but they have uh, they have recruited very well, bringing in Yeremienko and uh, Ivalin Popov in midfield, a lot of experience there. Um, so I don't expect a great deal of change. The only possible, other than the title race itself, the only possible thing I think could be quite interesting to see is Krasadar and Tesco, which way around those two will finish. But otherwise, I expect it to actually be the top five as it is. So, David, talk to me about your, your club, Rubin, of course, and Rostov. What what can you sort of... Because Andrew says he expects that top five sort of to stay the same. I can I can see where he's coming from, but Rubin had a good uh, win of the, the opening of the spring, if you like. So, what are you thinking there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Rubin of... Uh, been banned from Europe originally. Um, they are challenging that ban, so we'll, I think we're waiting until early April to find out whether their ban will be overturned um, by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, but obviously, the squad in Kazan is very poor. I mean, the situation in general in Kazan is very poor. Um, you know, lack of money, um, fans not turning up for the stadium in great numbers anymore. Uh, the squad is paper thin. Um, with a lot of academy talents, that, or a lot, say talents, just a lot of academy players having to be used in the first team, especially over the uh, winter break. Um, you know, countless teenagers having to having to play. Um, so it was a surprising win for me yesterday. I did not think they would get it, um, and they did leave it late, granted. Uh, so I'm, I, I would be very surprised if they managed to keep up and stay sixth. I think they'll end up dropping to ninth or tenth by the end of the season you'll see teams like Rostov, Arsenal um, hard to judge on Akmat, they seem to be very hard to predict over the last uh, season or so um, so I think yeah, Rostov and Arsenal will certainly be my, my top choices for um, the sixth place race if uh, Rubin fall down as I predict they might just do um, and then after that yeah, I think everyone else will just stay in that mid, sort of mid-table group, although it is a very close group, you know, between Rostov and Orenburg, which is 7th to 12th, you've got three points. So any of those five teams in reality are in with a semi-decent shot of doing it. Uh, it would only take, you know, a couple of couple of results going their way and, and they're up there. So who knows? Just to give you a bit of uh, insight into the life of the RFN podcast, by the way, a little pop-up just came on the screen and it, James saying, surprised Andrew didn't say Ural in 7th. So uh, <laughs> I don't know what people are thinking there. But, <laughs> well, uh, I'll, 
I'll tell you why. It's a very, very simple reason, because there's some there's some Tim Pot team from Moscow that we're easily going to beat in the Russian Cup, and that's how we're <laughs> going to get into Europe. So, you know, we, we, we don't need the league for that. Um... <laughs> so, Andrew, I'm going to come, come to you, because I'm, I'm going to say this. Although you, you don't really like to admit it, Ural are near, are near the bottom of the table. So let's, what, what are we thinking about that then? So not just Ural, but uh, uh... in general. You know, the, the table does lie, as we all know, and uh, numbers on a page, uh, they don't matter. Oral are, no, okay, you, you're right. Oral have a lot of weaknesses. Um, and actually, it's it, it's a, it's an interesting point for this part of the table. Like David mentions, that gap of three points between 7th and 12th is typical of the Russian Premier League because a lot of clubs maybe have slightly different problems, but there's there's actually very, very little difference in quality for a large part of the league. Um, Oral yesterday against Zanit on paper you'd think Zanit should absolutely walk the game and they were fairly comfortable and in control but Oral just haven't had a goal scorer um, of any description really for such a long time Pavel Pogrebniak made his, made his debut after uh, eight months after joining um, and you know he was good at physical hold-up play but there was no danger to Zanit's defence uh, whatsoever so those fine margins when there's only three points separating all those teams, those fine margins when you've got a chance, you need somebody who's got that instinct, that bit of extra, I don't know what you would call it, athleticism to get on the end of crosses, whatever it is, that make the difference between, well, one or two places and potentially even more importantly, survival or not, or European places or not. Um, so, but I have a well-balanced side up until critically up front. So, um, Unfortunately, yesterday's result is has set us back. Um, and that's the nature of this part of the season, isn't it? There's only 13 games, one bad result, and certainly two, and your season can, changes completely. So, um, I will be starting to look over their shoulder now, unfortunately. And looking right at the bottom here, James, we're assuming Yenisei are gone. I think they are... Well, they're, they're seven points adrift of sort of even the playoff places, so I'm going to assume they're gone. I'm going to come back to Yenisei in a minute, by the way. So what else do you expect to happen down at the bottom there? Yeah, I think uh, in direct contrast to what was said earlier about the possibly exciting title race, I think, the to be quite honest, I think the, the bottom four positions are probably quite sewn up and that Yenisei are almost certainly gone. They've had an interesting winter transfer window, bringing in some quite... Decent, well, experienced names to try and help them out. Experience in, in Russian football anyway. I think Oleg Danchenko on loan from Shakhtar is particularly quite a good signing. He got an assist earlier on today for uh, Babakar Saar's header. Saar himself is a very controversial signing. He's actually undergoing a rape case in, in Norway at the moment. So the less done that, the better in, <laughs> on the on the actual case itself. But the, the signing itself is quite quite controversial. I think Savicev from Angie is, is quite a decent signing, but saying that, I think they're just too far gone at this stage to even to, to, to try and get out of the relegation playoff, at least at the very best. Uh, today against Rostov, they, they, they struggled at the start. They didn't really impose themselves on the game, and I think the first shot on target was Saar's header right at the end of the match. And just One thing that will hold a bit of hope for me, well, in theory, is that they didn't just try and sit back with 11, 10 men behind the ball again. For most of the first half of the season, that's how they played. But then, in the in the first game of the, of the second half window, yesterday against, uh, today, sorry, against Rostov, they, they actually pressed really high at the pitch and, 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 and got, out the, got out their own half of what seems like the first time this season. 
in saying that because of that, it was a very good but relatively simple ball over the top from Norman that just caught the NSA defence completely apart. It was awful defending. And if they defend like that going forwards, I just can't see them getting out. And I think the NSA are pretty much far, far gone, far gone conclusion by now. And Angie, Ufar and Krillia, I, I, I honestly don't know which of the three are going to go down automatically. My head says Angie, but it's just such a bizarre team to try and to try and predict at all what they're going to do. I mean, before today, they hadn't won in five games. They've just had an awful winter transfer window where they didn't sign anybody and sold nearly every single good player they've got in the first half of the season. I think the only senior, decent, half-decent players they've got left going forward are, are Ponce and Lascano up top. And just, they've had an awful window yet and again got a result against what's a, a very good result away to a relatively solid Orenberg side with a, a nice free kick late on. So and Angie are just as tip typically ever in Russian football the absolute madhouse and impossible to predict if I'm quite honest yeah coming David because James mentioned Yenisei there and I would get your take on the general bottom of the table and James mentioned Yenisei's transfers and are you surprised because it surprises me slightly that they've done so much business and the other thing clearly I'm looking at the um, transfer piece again they've got a lot of sort of recognisable names coming in but you've picked out the, uh, the signing from Chertanova Zinkovsky but are you kind of surprised at Yenisei's activity and what do you make of Krilia's overall recruitment? Because like I said, quite a few big names in there. Um, yeah, Yenisei, the the stature of their signings did surprise me. You know, Danchenko, Kubelov, uh, Sovichev have all got experience of fighting a relegation battle. You know, Kubelov um, has saved Andy from relegation. Uh, I think twice he's been involved and last year I think he scored like the crucial goals to save them. Kanchenko was brilliant all last season for Angie when he was on loan there. Sabachev's been one of Angie's best players um, playing as right back, but I think he played as a left winger today um, for the NSA. Um, you know, Sobolev's coming from Kruli on loan, and that's not a bad signing, decent young striker. And then Saar, as James said, controversial, but as far as I'm aware, he is very highly rated as an actual player. And obviously, he's done well scoring on his debut. So I'm surprised they did manage to get those players of that calibre to come to them considering their situation you'd have to assume that you know they're they're on short-term contracts and they'll be able to just leave once the season's up if they get relegated etc etc um but yeah it was a it was good from them uh Krillia seems it sort of reeks of sort of desperation i think um god knows how they've managed to bankroll everything they've done you know obviously they bought in some big players from big clubs on loan. Uh, January from uh, Spartak, Shishkin from Krasnodar, Timofeyev from Spartak. Obviously, Samyudov is the biggest name to come in. He's come in permanently um, after Spartak let him go. Um, and then, of course, Zinkovsky's come in from Chertanovo uh, as one of our uh, writers. Alex has said on a number of occasions he was the best player in the Feniel. Uh, and he did impress over the uh, winter break, scoring three. I saw three goals he scored, and they were all crackers from outside the box. Um, so on paper, they've done some really good stuff. It's just a case of whether they'll actually be able to, you know, do anything with it. Um, you know, against Loco yesterday, um, I saw the first goal, which was Samidov linking up with Jano. Um, it's a terrific, terrific, nice little goal they scored. So you know. Considering it seemed a desperation, maybe they'll be able to put it together. They've got a very big squad there now, and there is definitely some genuine talent there. So 
you'd hope that they'd be well not hope maybe not so hope but you'd imagine they'd be okay to survive um at the, at the very best to the relegation playoffs um on a personal level i'm hoping ufa can get out i've always had a soft spot for them and they've really struggled since uh, the start of the season where they had to juggle the uh, league and the europe league together um and that early season form where they were you know playing every three days between you know luxembourg and eastern russia you know that that really hit them hard and they've struggled to get back from that and it's just sort of gone on and on since then so i'm hoping they can get it together um and put on a charge to save themselves um but then it's a double double-edged spear for me because i'm also i also have a soft spot for angie so i'm sort of hoping neither of them go down um and then i'm hoping that Carilio don't go down either because it's decent to have the world cup stadium in the in the premier league so um it's going to be a hard, a hard one to watch at the end of the season because I don't really fancy any of those teams to go down. But it's going to be one of those three, sadly. You seem to have a soft spot for every team, David, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, not every team. Everyone hates Amcar Perm. Although they're not. Yeah, 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 so. yeah, yeah. They hate them so much they don't exist anymore. How nice. But, <laughs> yes. <they're... laughs> but James, moving, keeping with the transfer window theme, what, what else has stood out to you in this transfer window? I think the, the exciting thing from our fan perspective is that we, we, we kind of we bang the drum on Chertanova Moscow quite a lot. And, and there's been so many of their players able now to take a step up into the RPL. And that's obviously brilliant for Chertanova because they rely on selling players to exist as, an, as what they call not just a football club, but as an academy, as a school. They really consider themselves. Uh, we've got an interview with uh, Nikolai Larin up on the site and, and he really push the idea that it is, it is more of an academy in a school rather than a football club. So for them, making, so Zinkovsky making the step up, Grushenkov making the step up, Umiarov making the step up, and all, all getting these window moves, it's absolutely brilliant for Chetanova. And I think sticking with Krulia, just a quick second, I've got myself, I've got a little bit of a soft spot for Krulia. I think Samara is one of the most, the, the best places I've been to in Russia. And uh, I think going back to under the Metalurg Stadium, being there for a league game when it was almost full, the fans are brilliant. I, I do have a little bit of a soft spot for Krillian. I do hope personally to stay up. And obviously, as a Spartak fan, anybody who gets the best out of Jana Renanidza and gets them finally playing on a football pitch is, is, is can only be better for us. But uh, I just agree that it kind of does smack a little bit of desperation. I mean, this the the the, the duos, the, the sorry triple signing on loan for of, of a. Samedov, Jano, and Stemofeyev from Spartak. It was it was bankrolled essentially more so by Spartak because they were so bloody desperate just to get rid of the three of them and nobody would take them. And they like, they offered them around to numerous RPL clubs and Krilia were the one who said, "Yeah, we'll have all three. Was like, well, they've signed that. They've signed a lot of players, but and Bozovic I think is a good coach, but I do honestly worry for them for the rest of the season. Um, James mentions Chertanova there, by the way, and he mentions there's a piece on the website. We also did a little segment on a podcast uh, with them, obviously, before the winter break. So do go and listen to that and read the piece, like James says. Andrew, um, probably the most, sort of the, the biggest transfer window would obviously be Zenit, I would say. Parade is going, but also bringing Asmoon and things. So you obviously saw them uh, mm-hmm. as they came back. So what, how, do you th- how do you think they looked? Well, they were... They were all excellent, actually. It was it was quite interesting for me to watch because I haven't seen uh, Wilmar Barrios in uh, when he played for Boca Juniors, but I spoke to a friend of mine out there and he said he's very very confident on the ball and he often drops back between the two centre backs. And last night that's what he did. He was probably almost the deepest 
of the of the back three, if you like, alongside um, Ivanovic and Rakitsky. Rakitsky was the one who played the ball out of defence, and his long, medium-range passing was was really, really accurate. It was one of their one of their biggest weapons, to be honest. Um, building attacks, um, he looked really confident on the ball. Barrios was very energetic. He didn't have the most composed game, but you can see how difficult he's going to be to contain. Um, but Asmoon, is, it's not really a secret. We've known about him, and most of the world now knows about him after his exploits for Iran, but he was so, so good alongside Zuba. They made such good partnership. They're really, really good understanding. Um, they very rarely lost the ball when it was played up to them. And I, I've got to be honest, they those three signs, they made sense at the time, but I didn't think they would be quite so effective so early. Now, I know Ural are not the most dangerous side um, going forward, so it wasn't the biggest test of Rakitsky and Barrios, but it was the way they were quite versatile and they fit alongside each other so well that I think speaks, speaks volumes, really, for how effective they'll be. So um, I have to be honest, Zanita are now looking very dangerous again. And it's, it's, it's like I say, it's such fine margins. If at the end of the winter break, they limped over the finish line. They were just desperate for that winter break to come. And I thought there's no way in hell they're going to win the title. But now, I, I, straight away, I'm going to put them back to my favourites again. So, yeah, a brilliant transfer window for them. Um, and last night, if that's anything to go by, then I, think, I don't think anybody's going to catch them. Yeah, and uh, James, you wanted to mention something about Zenit? Yeah, I was just a little bit surprised with the with Magomedov's Doyev starting. He's, he started two games in a row now, with obviously the second leg against Fener in the Europa League, and then against Ural uh, the, at the weekend, and, and he had an absolutely brilliant game. I kind of I, I joked in the in the chat that we've got like, with, with some of the other guys that he's kind of been the forgotten man. I genuinely completely forgot that he existed and was at Zenit. And, and yesterday, even though Asmoon got the all-important goal, it was from a great assist from Ozdoyev, the header of the top, finding him in free space. And Ozdoyev actually, for me, was the man of the match. I think if you look at the statistics alone, he completed more passes than anybody else in the Zenit team. He, he created more chances than anybody else, won more duels and won more tackles than anybody else, apart from Rakitsky, the set centre-back. He was genuinely everywhere. And obviously, it's only against only against Ural, who are, we'll all admit here pretty readily that Ural are not a very good team, and they're right, Andrew. <laughs> but Ozdoyev was absolutely brilliant yesterday. Yeah, he was. I, I second that from James. Ozdoyev was absolute, absolute class. He really was. And he, he was my man of the match, too. Although, I, I don't mean to downplay it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a standout man of a match decision because Zeni looks such a good unit together. But I, I do definitely agree. Ozdoyev was it's like a changed man. It was good to see. So just to sort of round off this topic, then I'll come to you first, David. What for those listeners? Give me one thing, whether it's a club or a player or a situation in the Russian Premier League or below, if you fancy, um, to look out for this spring. Um. I think for me, it's got to be the title race, um, slash Krasnodar, slash Zenit in Europe. I mean, those two having their title race and the European runs is the thing for the spring. Um, they're the things that are going to be furthering Russian football in general if they can carry on doing well in Europe. And it's, if there's a good title race going on between these two good teams that both, on the whole, play very good football, then that's the kind of thing that's going to help uh, you know, get more viewers for the league. Um, and to be honest, you know, we've still got this big game today between Spartak and Krasnodar, but to be honest, it's very hard to call at the moment. Um, and 
you know, considering the signings, you know, we just talked about Asmoon and uh, Barrios. I think uh, I think that's the one for me. The title race slash uh, European runs from Villa and Prestonville. I'm not sure if you did it on in, on purpose, David, but you said thing for the spring, which is a lovely catchy headline for this tiny little segment. So, James, what's your thing for the spring? <laughs> for me, I'm going to go a little bit, maybe maybe left fields, and I'm going to say Arsenal Tula. I think the table kind of, the, the position in the table kind of belies a little bit how well they've been playing this season. Obviously, they've got the win. But yesterday, it's, it's against uh, Siska and they're now up to eight. And they're only oh, five points behind Ruben. Obviously, Ruben themselves, as it stands, won't be allowed to qualify for for Europe. If they do, then if if the if the position gets pushed down to seven, Arsenal then only two points behind Rostov, and they've won the three of the last five. While Rostov haven't won any of the last five matches, I think they had a pretty like, I think they had a pretty solid solid summer uh, winter sorry winter transfer window. Arsenal and they only brought in uh, Maxim Volodko from Barta Borisov and Bakri Kone Frank Ferguson. I think Bakri Kone is a very experienced uh, player who can who can add a little bit to the to the defence that they've missed maybe since not getting Sopila Sunzu on the permanent transfer. But more importantly for Arsenal is that they've kept a hold of all of their key players: uh, Victor Alvarez, Maxim Belyaev, uh, Abdul Kadiri, uh, Evans Kangwa, Zelenkan Bakayev, and Luka Jordievich are all still at the club. And I, th- I think we discussed yesterday myself and David that Evans Kangwa goes absolutely brilliant against the Sky. And I, I don't think he's that sort of player where, if, say, if he did make the step up and got a transfer to one of the elite teams, I think he'd actually struggle. I don't think he's got that sort of technical ability in the right spaces with the close control to be able to unlock a defence, a, a defence that sits deep against these bigger teams. But for, for a mid-table side like Arsenal, he's absolutely perfect. He's such an important and important attacking threat on the counter. His pace in behind, his ability just to... More than anything, just stammer and energy and pure directness scares the hell out of some defenders. And he he created one of the goals. He scored himself and then created the other goal. Granted, it was like in fair of mistakes. But he had a great game. And even though they've lost Ole Kolonov, I think Arsenal may be a team to look out for going ahead, getting these European positions for the second half of the season. And Andrew, finally, what's your thing for the spring? Uh, watch Pavel Pogrebniak terrorise defences. No, I'm joking, not really. Um... I'm going to, okay, I'll go slightly more left field, I think. Um, James brushed on the point. I'm just looking forward to seeing Jano Ananidze on the pitch. Um, he's got a massive change of atmosphere down at Crelia. It's, it's a relegation battle. Um, I don't think Crelia are going to get out of it, but um, I think um, I, I think seeing Jano Ananidze um, getting some game time, I, him getting goals, great for him, and I've always been a fan of his. So, it's it's a shame that Indre has robbed him of a few years of his career, but perhaps this could catapult him back uh, back in there. I mean, just on a mild oral note, um, Stefan Strandberg is another who's been injured for a long time. Um, that was his first full 90 minutes. He told me yesterday, 26 months, I think it was. Uh, he looked absolutely fantastic for Odal. So um, those two players, Strandberg and Januan and Nidze, how they can influence lower tides in the table. I was uh, I was so glad you mentioned Ural both at the, the start of your little piece and the end because I, I had my RFN podcast bingo card out and I was managing to stamp off the Ural bits. No mention of uh, two men yet though, Andrew. I'm still waiting for those, so hopefully they'll. Oh, they'll oh, along. Don't, don't worry. There, there's um, there's a mention of that coming up. Savelli Kozlov, the signing of the winter break for Orenburg. Somehow they left him out of their side yesterday, and that's why they lost. Yeah, obviously you you should be a manager, Andrew. See what happens. But. Um... <laughs> 
But let's move on now. And um, David mentioned it earlier about you know the the title race and therefore bringing more viewers in. And we've just had an announcement uh, from the Russian Premier League that we've got some matches streaming for free on YouTube. Now, to me, James, uh, there doesn't seem any sort of bad side to this. Oh, no, not at all. I think it's brilliant for us international viewers. Obviously, this uh, without saying it in so many words, we've had to find ways around watching Russian Premier League live back at home and, and for myself in the UK. And usually that involves pretty terrible streams and or awful quality. And then in the in the chat when we're all watching a match together, someone will say, oh, goal. And I'm like standing and I'm mine's maybe a minute behind. I'm like, oh, God damn it. I've missed it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant news. So it's going to be free on YouTube for, for everybody outside of Russia. Uh, English graphics now, and according to the RPL moderator on this on the channel in the chat the other day, he's he mentioned that English commentary is planned to come ahead. And all the games were uploaded on the channel afterwards in forty-five minute videos. So basically, the first half and the second half. So if you do miss the live stream, you can go back and watch a full game on a replay. It's been absolutely, it's been relatively pretty solid so far. The first game was uh, Orenberg versus Angie, and it was. That was like the, the the big like the big the very first one I've ever done this on. It was it was still Russian graphics. It's been updated to English graphics now. That one actually had Russian commentary on it. The one since haven't had any at all. And it, they've only had a few technical gremlins. Was, that one was a little bit late. Uh, Ural Zenit was actually I think the first half an hour, thirty five minutes of the match were completely missed. But apart from that, I mean, they, they could be just down to teething issues with any with any luck because. Every other game has been on time. The stream's been absolutely fantastic. Hasn't dropped out once for myself at all. The quality is 720 pixels HD streaming. And to be honest, it's about time this game. Like, games have been illegally streamed for ages. So <laughs> any anything the better for the that can benefit RPL is, 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 is it could only be good. Um, I'll get in touch with the lawyers about how you previously watched uh, your RPL streaming, James. I'll make, <laughs> I'll make sure they hear that. But um, but Andrew, I. I mean, what do you what do you think the the local impression, perhaps you know, based on the ground there in Tumian? What do you think the locals would make of this? Because obviously they get the they get the matches free on um, Match TV anyway. Well, yeah, every every game is broadcast on a Match TV channel. Um, it'll probably pain you guys to know. I saw some reports saying next season in Britain to watch all of the games, it'll add up to about a thousand pounds for annual subscriptions or something, um, and. Here, if you pay 400 rubles, so about a fiver a month, you get every single Russian game, um, English, Spanish, the lot. Um, the thing about the broadcasting here is a strange one, really, because there's next to no value in TV packages for Russian football, simply because it's 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 been broadcast for free so widely. Uh, last season, sorry, two seasons ago, um, Sportbox.ru website, which is linked to Match TV, owned by um, match tv i believe was actually broadcasting games live anyway um and if you are in russia you can get whatever is on match tv for free and it's streamed on the website so this is it's not a new concept for people here um and i i think it's i think it's just generally good to broadcast russian to r- russian football to to other countries simply because there's so little known about it. If you look at the, you mentioned, of course, the extra Champions League place because of um, the coefficient improvements. Uh, the Russian league is the sixth best league in, in Europe, according to that, and yet nobody really knows much about it. So I think it's a good thing 
for the outside world to see more of it. Um, so over here, yeah, it's, it's not so much of an impact simply because free and comfortable broadcasts uh, have been around for quite some time. Um, but I think this is only a positive, like you say. Yeah, David. So you wrote the the article on the um, on the announcement. Of of course, uh, readers can go and check that out. It's on the the front page of the uh, Russian Football News website at the moment. And something that piqued my interest is, was when you mentioned about um, eleven sports and Premier Sports. When perhaps when the le- they pick the league up, and perhaps that would be best. But I personally, I mean, you you can convince me otherwise. I'm not quite sure how that would benefit the Russian league. Well, I mean, firstly, I would just say you know this is a brilliant thing, uh, even if it is just until the end of the season. Um, but obviously, at the moment, it's very limited. You know, we're we're tweeting about it and we're posting about it, but um, obviously, there's been no official announcement other than through the Zenit Twitter feed, um, because obviously they're still in a testing mode, and then allegedly they'll then officially announce it. Um, but even when they officially announce it, it, you know, what's the audience of that announcement? Who's that going to be announced to? The the audience for the Russian, you know, the RPL Twitter feeds or whatever is quite small. So let's just say, you know, until the end of the season, the numbers on um, on the YouTube stream, you know, they continually grow. I think we're seeing, um, you know, 500 viewers maybe for the smaller games at the moment, and um, in the in the low thousands, two to three thousand for the bigger games is what we've seen so far this weekend. Um, which, which are respectable numbers considering there's been no proper announcements. Um, so let's just say that, you know, they continue to grow. You know, they're doing this obviously broadcasting it free to the rest of the world because no one else in the world is picking up the Russian league. No one's paying for the licenses to broadcast it because no one wants it. But let's just say next season, Premier Sports or 11 Sports pick it up. You've already got tons of people who pay for those licenses because they want to watch La Liga, they want to watch Serie A. If they renew their license so they can see those games, and then, oh, the Russian League's on there. Oh, there's another game on, let's just stick Spartak versus whoever on, whoever on, or Zenit versus whoever on. Zenit Spartak's on, and think, oh, Zenit Spartak, that should be a good game. They're two big teams. That's the kind of thing that's going to potentially get that to a much bigger audience. You know, the YouTube streams are great, but at the moment it's coming out to a very limited audience just because the word of mouth is only able to travel so far. And I think getting it on one of those bigger platforms that have the bigger leagues on there, which people are paying for, just by attrition of being near it, I suppose, it should pick up some extra viewers and get a bigger audience there. I think, obviously, while it isn't great that it's then a paid service, uh, and we lose the ability to stream it for free on YouTube and therefore on our TVs, if you have a smart TV or a PlayStation or Xbox, it does further the, the reach of the league, which I think is obviously in this post-World Cup era, you know, being around Russia is sort of semi-decent at the moment. People, people know that Russian football exists after the World Cup. Um, I think it's a good step in the right direction for PR for league. And James, particularly after we saw the strange decision to go with uh, Pro Evolution Soccer rather than FIFA after the World Cup, this is a this is a step in completely the right direction. Yeah, it's absolutely in the right direction. It's nice to see the RPL making a good decision for the first time in what seems about three decades. <laughs> but no, it's it's like we all want Russian tele Russian uh, domestic matches to be televised around the world, international broadcasting rights, because that's only better for the game. The more money in the game, more money going to the clubs is better. You, you don't see teams like Tozna and Amkar here, what's happened in the last couple of seasons where where they've basically ceased to exist, and one of which has been. Like reborn into a completely different brand. You need these. You need essentially. I, I don't like 
television money. I don't like football on television too much. But without that, a lot of the clubs are unsustainable. And until then, there's, there's a few difficulties why. I mean, the Russian league in itself is not massively attractive to foreign audiences, unfortunately, as David mentioned. But with with Krasnodar with Zenit getting through the the last 16 in the Europa League and with proper ties against big Spanish clubs already beating European giants, getting better and better in the coefficients every year can only increase. But until that point where international broadcasters are ready to negotiate and the RPL themselves actually, are, are, they, they kind of they don't they don't put it out there enough at all to try and negotiate these deals. They're nowhere near proactive enough. Until then, they might as well put the YouTube stream out for free until they can get this deal, just like David said, to get that recognition out there, to get the RPL name out there. If you ask a, a neutral viewer, oh, what's the what's sixth best league in the world? Guaranteed 99% of people would probably say the Russian, uh, sorry, the, the Portuguese or Dutch league, and they wouldn't say the Russian, which is actually getting closer and closer to the French league every single every single year. So it, it, it's a 100% a step in the right direction. And obviously for all of us who watch the Russian games week in, week out, it's so much easier. <laughs> So, but just coming to you, Andrew, I mean, I, I, to be fair, I totally agree with what David and James are saying about the sort of the pay for broadcast coming and that'd be great for the league. But is there, a, is there a slight danger that people might be, so say they're used to watching on YouTube and then they suddenly find they have to pay a bit for it and think, oh, don't, don't really fancy that. Do you see what I'm trying to get to? I actually think the the opposite because they get a taste for it. It's like on I mentioned Sportbox.ru, which is a brilliant brilliant website um, for streaming. They have all these little highlights on it, and they had a season where the Fanny was certainly for free, and I can't, I think they had some games for free in the Premier League. And then they just they added a little charge, and I, some people will turn off. Some people won't pay even a tiny amount. Um, but I think I think the, the price they're likely to charge to watch is never going to be very much anyway um even with the you know relative to the context of um salaries in russia the tv subscriptions are are minuscule so i don't think whatever online um broadcast fees end up uh, being imposed i don't think they're going to be that high um but i think not moving on to online broadcasting is a big, big error if anybody chose to do that, because that's where people watch almost all their content of any description nowadays. So I do think it's a positive move, um, even if it does mean having to pay a small subscription, as long as that guarantees a good stream. Because like James alluded to, it's one of the biggest challenges of, of watching any football, yet alone Russian football, is getting a regular good quality stream. So if that's what can be guaranteed, I think most people, and in the end, will be happy to pay a small amount for it. So, uh, I think it's a good, good move. And James, you wanted to quickly come back with something on that, I think. Yeah, I've just noticed on Twitter. I mean, I don't know why or how, but uh, I've got to say thanks to Mark Bullen as well. Actually, it's Zenit, Zenit again because if it wasn't for him, literally twenty minutes before the the stream of Orenberg Angie, he directly messaged himself and said that. This, this streams up. I was like, oh, great. So we retweeted it. And the, the, like, like David mentioned, the only advertising at all has been on Zenit's EN website where they, they tweeted saying that the RPLEN is now streamed live to English viewers or international viewers abroad. The original tweet is now unavailable. And obviously, the RPL have stated privately, not publicly yet, that it is only in a testing stage. But now Zenit's own tweet about it, who were the only ones to actually get the fanfare around the streaming service is now deleted, being deleted entirely. 
so there's a few weird question marks about that. I wonder why. I wonder what stage this is actually in, but hopefully it can only get better and out of testing is a testing's a great success and hopefully the English commentary will come and it'll just get go get bigger and bigger from there. I think the peaked the peaked against uh, Ural Zenit match was uh, about two thousand viewers. So it, it's it can only be good for me. Just a, I appreciate I'm only a mediator, but if I can quickly comment, I'll just just regarding that tweet and things, James, I imagine what's happened is that they they obviously put the tweet out and they've got quite a big international following, of course, the, the Zenit English page in particular, and they've got all the other ones as well. I imagine they've had a quick slap on the, the wrist from the RPL saying, this is only in the testing stage at the moment. Can you get rid of it? Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. And then yeah, that's definitely. probably what's happened. But let's keep on the governance theme then for our, our final topic. And that is, of course, we have a new shiny Russian Football Union president. That is Alexander Dzyukov, who's the chief executive of Gazprom, former president of Zenit St. Petersburg, of course. Uh, he's going to be in charge until 2021, so that's uh, about two years or so. Uh, he was the only applicant for the role, interestingly. And uh, just to read a couple of quotes from him before we get into a discussion, he says, Thank you for the support and trust. It is very important for me personally, since it is not only a grand honour, but a huge responsibility as well. We are setting difficult tasks, but it makes them interesting to accomplish. We will be working as a single team. We all understand what we have to do, and I believe we will manage everything. Well, he obviously comes in to replace uh, Vitaly Mutko, who has been si- trying to be sidelined, particularly from Russian sport and perhaps a bit from Russian government as well, uh, due to his supposed involvement in the the Russian doping scandal. So let's talk about Dyukov then. Um, what, are we, what, what are we hoping for mainly from him, David, do you think? Um, I imagine just some actual good decisions would be nice. Um, you know, and some, and some stability. Uh, you know, Mutko sort of took it upon himself just to just to do whatever he wanted, basically. I think, um, and so just you know, in this era, I'll say it again, you know, the post World Cup era that we're in now, where you know we're we're hoping for an upturn in Russian football, we're hoping for that legacy to actually be a legacy, you know, for football in Russia to to take off to be popular again, um, and we need some good decisions. Uh, from the uh, Russian Football Union to make that happen. You know, we don't want to keep seeing our clubs collapse like we did with Tosno and with um, Club Herman. You know, we've got Ruben in trouble at the moment, as well as a couple of Daniel clubs like Avangard. So we need some support for the clubs who are in trouble. We need better decisions. We just need some stability from, from the top. And then, you know, maybe he can bring it, maybe he can't. We'll, we'll, we'll only, only time will tell. And James, uh, Dukov, I believe, has made quite a few announcements of his plans of uh, what he's planning to do. So what, what have we got there? So, yeah, and then a few interviews and, and that he's made already. He's mentioned the, the, two big, the two big ones, obviously, that he's going to bring in fine IDs for the World Cup for all domestic games. Uh, he's going to be introducing beer being sold into the stadiums and drank, allow be drank in the stands while watching the match, very much following the German and French model in that aspect. Both great ideas. I mean, the fine ID system works pretty much faultlessly. Over the summer, it was great for for foreign fans to get in and travel around all of Russia without having to pay for the visa for games. And that's going to be the same again. It's all about the visas and and knowing about what fans go where. It's organisational issues and just making it easier for football fans in general. So that's a good start. Obviously, the beer is a great start. It's all about building uh, the income for and profits for clubs as much as possible. Not just oh, go in five minutes, maybe get one pint or whatever, and watch the match being not allowed and get treated like animals. If I'm honest, I mean. It happens in the world over, and myself as an English football fan, 
we we went to a trip like animals and hooligans where you say, oh, you're not allowed to drink beer in the stands, yet nearly every single other sport in nearly every single country in the world to do that. Now, personally, I don't need, I can go 45 minutes without having to have a pint. But if it gets people in the in the grounds quicker, if it gets more people in the grounds, if it makes the club profit, it can only be a good thing. Aside from that, he's also mentioned that he wants to build uh, more sports halls, especially out in the more wintry areas, like more in the Siberian, uh, up in Siberia, there more sports halls all over the country, very much following the Icelandic model. Uh, obviously, the, I think Andrew would be testament to say that the weather in Tumen, it's, in tropical times, is at least still minus 10. So <laughs> that's only a great thing. Um, another one is that they're going to be discuss- apparently, well, his exact words were the the question of how many foreign players may be set in Russian professional teams at the same time will certainly come back to the table. So hopefully by coming back to the table he means taking away the stupid, ridiculous role and, but at least if they're going to be debating it there is a possibility for getting rid of it. Yeah, it's and the last game. one is that Wilkins, yeah, as always, it's been the pariah over the Russian football for the last three or four years now, and it's just horrendous. I'll be honest, James. Hope- I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of bored of the foreigner question, if you know. What I mean. Not, not <laughs> no offence to anyone, obviously, on the panel. You're right to mention it. I'm just saying, as a point in Russian football, it gets so tiresome. Yeah, it, it was. It was obviously just a. It, it was a, it, to me. It seemed it smacked of just panic. It was just brush, brush the brush the problems under the carpet that like they always do, and the Russian apparatchiks, and just oh, there's a world. We've got a World Cup coming soon. Crap! What do we do? What do we do? Foreign element, right? Well, now the World Cup's gone. It was absolutely brilliant. There's a legacy that's in place that they can actually take hold of and take advantage of. Now let's get rid of that. We'll discuss this another time, but anyway, it's on the table to be discussed. And then the World Cup stadia, in his opinion, to be handed over to the football clubs direct directly, who are then to be responsible for generating profits. Now the other three great ideas. This one on paper, I can see why. If it benefits the football club to generate their own profit, great. But they're going to be responsible for doing that. They're not going to get any help at all from the RFS. Big. And we just know in Russia it doesn't it probably won't end up that way. So look at Kaliningrad, just to take an example and point. They were already struggling with the White Elephant Stadium. They're stuck in the Fina L. They cannot fill the stadium at all. Their attendances are actually paltry. They're one of the few the few like the cities and teams to not benefit from the post World Cup boost. They really are struggling. So what happens now in Kaliningrad, who already can't afford to travel all throughout Russia? I mean, it's well documented in both in in Russia and beyond, and obviously gets viral elsewhere when you got the one Lucha energy of Vladivostok fan going to Kaliningrad. They're in, they're in a little inlet on their own, far away. Now, how the hell are they going to be able to, re- to, to afford the running of this stadium? Yeah, they might get gifted it by the RFS for free, but they've still got to pay tax and they've still got to run it. And if just take Coventry City, for example, close at home in England. They have a great big stadium, the Rico Arena, that they got taken off them. It's getting taken off them again at the end of the season, they're homeless. Inferior... I can see why that's a good idea. On, on in practice, I think giving stadiums over at the football clubs is a, probably a terrible idea on the large part. Yeah, look, Andrew, I'd love to get your take on this because a lot of these World Cup stadiums have gone to FNL clubs, and you men, we've—I mm. I know I sort of, we sort of joke about it, but you know, we we do know it's a fantastic stadium there. So I'd love to know from your experiences at Tumen and how they handle that stadium. What you think could happen with this plan that we've seen proposed? Well, this is this is a really hard one to answer because. You know, when once you've built the stage, you've got to use them efficiently. But unless you get enough people through the gate, it's basically uh, it's not going to happen for clubs unless they can at least half fill the stadium. I mean, yesterday, for example, at the Centralny Stadium, the two extended stands that everybody laughed at, um, they're still there. But a good, I don't know, a thousand, maybe more Zenit fans were in that. There are 20,000 fans in the stadium. 
And it was, you know, that's more than half full, but that's for the biggest team. When Orenburg came to um, Yekaterinburg back in the winter, they moved the games to the SKB Bank Arena. It was really, it's, it's an open training ground. It's not really even a stadium. 3,000 fans were there. Um, now, those open stands are going to cost, they said, $15 million to deconstruct and, meet, and make the stadium how it was planned to be from then on. I like it was originally, but with a, you know, the roof is slightly better acoustics and there's a slightly, slightly more seats overall. Um, but who wants to pay that? The city government don't want to. Um, the club certainly don't want to and certainly can't pay $15 million. Um, I mean, to put it into context, that sort of sum of money in the world of transfer fees going up into, you know, hundreds of millions rather than tens, a running cost for a Funnel club is somewhere between three and five million dollars for every single cost for an entire season. That's to run an entire second tier club. Now, the lower reaches of the Premier League are going to be more, but not much more than that. Um, so that's the sort of numbers we're talking. Um, to run a World Cup stadium, it's not just the size of it, it's the policing, it's the security, it's the even as the um, emergency services that have to be laid on for a stadium of that size. It costs money. And those are the sort of sums that you multiply it 15 times over the season. It's just it's unfeasible. So handing it over to the clubs is a big risk. And you've got to remember a lot of clubs are run by regional governments and their budgets are frequently change depending on local elections it's it's a risky move basically in my opinion um and if anything i'd say it's uh, it's almost a sign of of organizations wanting to wash their hands of the responsibility so i think it's it's up in the air and i think it's a very risky move what's your take on this uh, this p- potential move then david it's it's very tricky if they can't afford it then you know this is where having all these government-controlled clubs and, and stuff is very difficult. Obviously, a lot of the clubs are trying to go more private. We've seen uh, Ruben go private. We've seen uh, Emo go private recently, I think, as well. So, yeah, it, it's it's going to be a problem, that's for sure. Um, I, I personally think the if if it's if those costs are try, uh, right, I mean, those stands are never coming down. They'll be there forever. I, I can't see them ever moving, personally, if that's, if that's the case. But, you know, what can you do about geography? Kaliningrad is out there, but you can't move it. The decision was made to make that a World Cup city host. They've got to make it ha- make it work somehow. Otherwise, it's you know it was just a waste of money. What they can do about that, I don't know. I, you know, with Baltica struggling at the bottom of Feniel, um, they certainly won't be promoted this season. So um, until they do, it, it's going to struggle to sort of keep itself running, I suppose. And James, just um, quickly about the stadiums, then I wanted to ask you also about the fan ID, because what what are the plans for the fan ID? Because obviously during the World Cup it was for foreign fans, but are we understanding it's going to be for Russian fans in this sense? Firstly, one, as I said on the stadium one last note, is the, we discussed beforehand the Russian Cup final, and we're wondering where it is. And obviously before Mukko resigned, he announced that all Russian Cup finals are now going to be Luzhniki. Well... <laughs> If all Russia Cup finals, like I think that bit personally makes sense. I think it should always be at the national stadium. It's better for all the fans. That's what you dream of. You dream of watching your team lift a trophy in your national stadium. But on this point of view, if say Kaliningrad are struggling for funds, they're struggling to get teams in, they're struggling to get games. 
maybe putting that the cup final will get them a hell of a lot of money. But I don't know. It just seems that these are two decisions which are completely eroding against each other. And once again, that's unfortunately completely unsurprising. On the fine IDs, if I'm quite honest, I don't know. I've looked into this over the last couple of days since it's been announced. And I've been looking saying, and I've seen conflicting reports. There's an article on TAS that said it would be for foreign fans. Foreign fans could go to the domestic games, apply for a fine ID instead of having to pay about 130 quid or whatever for the visa. But then again, on, on other websites, it was on Soft Sports Mind, so I would probably take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt, that it was only for domestic. So what's the point? Like, what's the point in a fine ID for domestic fans apart from purely control and knowing where people are? Like, I, I don't, I, I mean, Andrew might, might be able to comment on this more as someone who lives in Russia, but why the hell would a domestic Russian fan need a fine ID in the first place? That's exactly what I was thinking, you say. Well, I mean, I mean, to be honest, James, you you ask it. I think I actually am a fan of the move. Basically, I think for to improve security a li- just that little bit more. There isn't a big problem with with football violence in Russia, despite what the various BBC propaganda machines tried to make us believe a year or two ago. In domestic Russian football, we don't see a great deal of problem with it. But I just think it's. Um, I think it. I don't think it will go through. I think it's one of the suggestions. That it's just going to take a little bit too much effort. It might disen, disenfranchise a few fans. But I think it's mostly security, as far as I can tell. Um, and perhaps it's just making the noise to to satisfy UEFA. You've got to remember, Dukov has fairly influential uh, standing with UEFA, given his history with Gazprom. Gazprom being UEFA partners and FIFA partners as well. Um, so it it all sounds very good, but I don't I don't expect it to really go through at most for security is all I can see. And uh, I think we'll end it there, chaps. That was a really good pod. But before we go, we have the one and only predictions league. Andrew, how's it going on that front? <laughs> well, like like James valiantly did for me, and in the autumn he covered for me when I was lost in mounds of snow. But it is on its way back. Um, Believe you me, it is a mountain of data. I've got to catch up on seven weeks' worth, but I'm halfway through. The leaderboard will be updated, and we are continuing relatively as normal. So there will be on Wednesdays or Thursdays at the latest messages going up as usual. So, guys, keep involved. Um, Facebook page as usual, and you'll see a video preview comment under there. And uh, see if you can get back to back, back up the leaderboard. So, uh, James, let's talk about the website itself as well. Um, what have we got coming up on that front? So there's a few, quite a few interesting ones we've got coming up. Obviously today, day of recording Sunday, will be the last piece on the RFN Top 50. We'll finally find out who are in the top three and who's covered at number one spot. And we will say, a little bit of a spoiler, it's definitely different to last year because Quincy Promise plays a severe. <laughs> Over the next few weeks, we've got Andrew, uh, next couple of days, actually, we'll have Andrew's match report of Rural Zenit. Uh, we're going to have a methodology and analytics uh, piece on the top 50, just explaining what, what our ideas were behind the top 50, how it's changed from last year, who's got the most involved, where, where clubs-wise, where people sit, nationalities-wise, where, where we sit on there. Uh, we'll have a nice piece from Vitali, profiling Mario Fernandez. Um, David's going to have a piece of profiling Cesar Navas as well in his, his recent retirement and what he brought to Russian football and how he's probably one of the best foreign defenders, maybe, question mark. To play in the RPL. Uh, another one from David of Wants to Watch on Maxim Grushenkov, who's just made the move from Chitanova to Spartak. Very exciting young player. 
And then Richard Pike will have a piece on the 10 winter signings to watch out for from from the transfer window just gone. And obviously this week, the big one uh, for the Europa League wise, we'll have previews for both the Zenit and Krasnodar games. And hopefully pretty soon we're going to be able to get back together for a podcast in the next round of these European games. So, David, uh, James mentions your piece about uh, Cesar Navas there. So, could you just uh, tell us a bit more? Because I know some good tweets on your timeline recently about this. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, he retired um, retired in February after 10 years in, in Russia. And he retired on his 39th birthday. Um, you know, he's he's uh, he played two clubs in Russia. Pretty much stayed with Kobe there for his whole time. As you well know, he's... He's a cracking defender. He was part of the, the famous Rubin team that beat Barcelona and won the league in 2009. He was part of the famous Rostov team, which almost won the league in 2015 and then went on that amazing European run in 2016. Um, and even this season, you know, he played every minute in the league, age 38. Didn't look, he didn't look any different to basically the first day that he joined Rubin when he was 29 years old. Um, but, you know, his ears caught up with him and family troubles have caught up with him. So, um, yeah, it was a sad time, but uh, I enjoyed enjoyed writing that piece. Um, uh, you know, the, I think you've, meant, you've mentioned the tweet, obviously, the, the stat that I saw was that in, uh, in 2017, he almost joined Ipswich Town when he was 27 years old. Uh, he got injured in a trial match against Crawley Town, um, fractured a metatarsal, and uh, the move fell through. Um, and then he moved on to Racing Santander and then eventually to Rubin. And just it just made me just wonder, you know, imagine if he'd signed for Ipswich Town in the Championship in 2007. Like how different would his career have been compared to how it's ended up today? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. enjoyed that one. And then after, obviously, David's piece on Navas, we're going to be having a little bit of a, a little bit of a look into the Djokovic situation and what he brings to the RFS, his experience as Zenit and actually one of the most interesting parts is probably the musical chairs that went on at Gazprom as a result. We've got obviously Djokov moving from the Gazprom the FCEO to the RFS in his place you've got the Zenit president Sergei Fasenko moving from Zenit to become the Gazprom the FCEO in the position he left and then in the position he left you've got Alexander Medvedev, the deputy chairman of the management committee of Gazprom which is a ridiculous mouthful, is going to be taken over from Fasenko and Zenit. And he was the first ever president of the Continental Hockey League from 2008 to 14. So it's kind of a little bit of musical chairs at Gazprom. And, and we're going to be looking into why, what's going on there and, and why that's the case. And then obviously that looking into the links with UEFA and how they're incredibly happy with the appointment. There's a quote from Zoran Lakovic, the UEFA representative, saying that he's lavish and praise on Zhukov, that he's an important sign of unity, that he ran unopposed, that he's a well-respected candidate and a dynamic business leader with great experience. So, looking a little bit into those UEFA and Gazprom links, which are very, very close and obviously very delighted with the, the way that the, the new RFS is going. So. I love a bit of PR guff from all organisations. It's fascinating, isn't it? But um, <laughs> just to sort of round off the podcast for the, the listeners, just in terms of uh, matches coming up this week involving uh, Russian teams and clubs, of course, we've got the Russian Cup action happening this week. Uh, so on Wednesday, we've got Arsenal, Tula and Orenburg, the second leg of that. The first leg was won by uh, Tula 4-2. 
And then also on the sixth, we've got uh, Rubin Kazan and Lokomotiv Moscow. Uh, Lokomotiv 1-0 up on aggregate there. And then on the Thursday, we have Ural and Spartak Moscow. That's finally poised at 1-1. And then, of course, we have the next round of the Europa League, the round of 16. Two Russian clubs left in there. That's Zenit St. Petersburg, who take on Villarreal. And then we have Krasnodar, who are away at Valencia. So just a reminder for everybody, thanks to the uh, World Football Index for hosting this podcast. Do subscribe to us on the World Football Index and all other podcasts on there. Uh, do keep looking on the website, RussianFootballNews.com. Of course, James details all the pieces that are going up on there constantly. And then, of course, at Russ Football News on Twitter. And do find the Russian Football News Facebook page, which, of course, Andrew mentioned is where you will find the Predictions League. So, again, thank you for listening, and we will be with you on the next podcast.